Today on the show, we have Stephanie Misar, who has a long career of working in international television broadcast. I started on that trek simply because I was completely entranced with Dan Rather when I was a little kid. As we get into, Stephanie has a number of skills and special powers. She also talks about her process of making big deals for clients and her peculiar love of networking. Put me in the middle of the room, spin me, watch me go. It's like I'm a top. <laughs> a six foot one top. Media on the Radio is a podcast that features conversations with media professionals. Everyone from producers and creators of media to those who do the marketing and distribution. The show is recorded at Arlington Independent Media, or AIM. If you live in the Washington, D.C. metro area and you want to get involved in media production, check out arlingtonmedia.org. There are countless ways to get involved, like volunteering on programs, taking classes, and producing your own media projects. This is Devin Gallagher, host of Media on the Radio, and thanks for listening. Based on what we learned from your bio and, and the intro, you started off going to school in, in South Dakota in, for college, and you you did major in communications and journalism. I graduated with a broadcast journalism degree and a communications degree. Also had sociology mixed in there as well. I started on that trek simply because I was completely entranced with Dan Rather when I was a little kid. And I mean that. It sounds kind of goofy to be like a seven and eight-year-old and wanting to sit on the couch and watch 60 Minutes and all the CBS um, programs at that time in the 80s, but... I love the idea of doing that. And as I got into high school, was equally as in love with Barbara Walters and Helen Thomas and Diane Sawyer. <laughs> you know, it was kind of written in the stars, I guess, if you're that early and you really find that that's intriguing to you as a child. So tell me about your college. What was the journalism program like? I had the unique opportunity to be one, a major of broadcast journalism in the journalism school. I also had the opportunity, being at a small state, a smaller school, being able to work at the Ag Communications office at the university, which was a complete and total standalone arm at the time, devoted to print journalism, devoted to radio, and also devoted to television. And everything that came out of there was basically a PR arm or a research writing arm to promote what was going on at South Dakota State University in research and agriculture. Instead of flipping burgers, I got to literally the whole time I was was in college um, from a freshman until a senior work in those divisions and I was a paid writer. I was a paid talent for on radio, a producer, a director for the radio service and I learned so much from those people and their mentors till this day, the folks that were back there at SDSU Ag Journalism. The the thing that was really interesting in my time frames, I graduated in 2001 so you know the late 90s and early 2000s was right when the transition was going from from learning how to really actually cut tape <laughs> versus working with Pro Tools and, and all the new technologies that were on Macs just starting at that time to edit. Mr. Paulson, he wanted and made sure that we learned how to cut tape and do, do the editing the old-fashioned way so that we actually knew the who's, what's, when's, where's, how's, and why's of, of the editing process. And so we had a whole semester of that before we even, before he even let us touch any of the newfangled stuff. <laughs> well, it's good that you learned on that because I see a lot of people, because I teach a lot of classes mm -hmm. with nonlinear editing, both Pro Tools and Premiere Pro. And I find that people that grew up without tape, and I, I'm one of them, I was the first ones I'd learned first on Final Cut Pro. There's this idea of so much choice that it's overwhelming 
you learn the software first, then retroactively you learn how to tell a story. Mm-hmm. And there's all of this ability to kind of move things around and edit on the fly that you you end up not preparing for for your edit. Whereas before you had to have a paper edit, you had to have every decision before you went into the room of what what the story or what the thing was going to look like. Right. Everything had to be laid out. Right. Very much so. And I mean, it really was a physical layout of what was going to happen. I wouldn't trade it necessarily. (laughs) That's a a luxury that we have now, isn't it? Right. Right. (laughs) And any any Mac that you can get, you can you can be an editor if you really want to. So you moved from South Dakota to Washington, D.C. Do you remember what was the transition like? Well, for me, growing up on a gravel road, <laughs> you see somebody and you're driving past them and you we wave like that's just the Midwestern way. Everybody waves and does a smile to everybody else. And that kind of uh, sensibility is something that you kind of <laughs> you, you keep into your into how you act in the real world. And I would guess me walking downtown in Washington, D.C. <laughs> initially when I moved out here with a smile on my face and looking everybody in the eyes that walks past me was probably not exactly what you recommend for the average person coming out here because people just look at you like you're a big goof. Because nobody is looking at each other and nobody is smiling at each other and everybody's thinking about where they're going next, what they're going to do and, and what they're going to accomplish for the day. So I probably did that for the first couple of weeks, realized that that was silly and something that we only do in the Midwest. And then I stopped it. <laughs> what was the type of work that you were doing when you got to D.C.? Ended up going on a lot of different interviews and nothing just seemed to fit. And that's the adage like. If it's meant to happen, it will. And it didn't happen. So that wasn't meant to happen um, in retrospect. But what did end up happening was um, a friend of a friend from South Dakota also lives out here. Meeting him was kind of the beginning to my uh, launch into the, the world of international journalism and working with news organizations from around the world. So you kept your your tie throughout all of this to, to journalism, but you, you focused more on marketing and branding. Can you talk a little bit about what got you excited about marketing and branding and digital strategy? Sure. Well, my original thought process, as I mentioned, was, you know, to be a journalist and to be out in the field and doing all that kind of thing. And after I had an internship at an ABC affiliate, (laughs) I realized just how much everybody is trying to claw and get their way to the next, you know, to the top and try to get to the next market. (laughs) And that as a younger 20-something just didn't sit right with my gut. The fellow South Dakotan that had been living out here for 15 years at that point as well, um, he ended up hooking me up with the French company called Globecast, which is a division of France Telecom, which is now known as Orange um, Worldwide. He was the one that had brought to my attention that there was a position available. Right at the beginning of the 2000s, I guess, would be it would be easy to say, is when... Folks like France 24 and Russia Today and Russia World and Al Jazeera English and CCTV from China and Mac TV from Taiwan and Euronews. It's when those guys all created themselves. They all decided, okay, why can't there be global news services like like BBC or CNN International, which were the only two in English that were considered international news sources at that time why can't there be the same kind of thing from france and why can't there be the same thing from russia and why can't there be the same thing from china or from the middle east region why not so that's really when all those guys started creating themselves and i just luckily by no other connection other than it just happened to be another south dakota and working at a global new organization had the ability to jump into that but you're also 
kind of open to it as well. Yeah. Right. So you can't necessarily give it all the, <laughs> that all the credit, but I want to uh, give the South Dakota connection the credit it deserves. <laughs> sure, sure. I see you as somebody that has kind of a lot of hyphens in their job description or commas, I should say. Either um, or slashes. Yeah, yeah, slashes. <laughs> um, whereas usually when I meet somebody like that, they have a lot of slashes, but they're really kind of jack of all trades, master of nothing kind of thing. I see you more as kind of like a superhero that actually can do all of those things, legitimately has all those hyphens. That's really kind of you. Where's my super cape at? You didn't bring a cape for this interview. <laughs> this is goofy. So can you, can you talk a little bit about that and how that kind of developed? <laughs> That superhero. That superhero. I, that's really kind of you to say. Um, it really is. I I bank all of it on the fact that I was raised in a household that super believed in communication, whether it was writing or talking or speaking up or understanding why you're saying what you're saying. And I've always said this <laughs> to anybody that asks. I really do honestly in my heart feel that if you can write well and you can speak well, you can do anything that you want to do. I just so happened to get thrown into this industry that was very, very new, along with all the people at the, at the, the TV stations around the world, um, at the networks around the world. And when they created themselves, they were trying to seek out their destiny as well. They generally knew what they wanted to do and what they wanted to accomplish with their brands. But all of us um, that were originally in those launch launch periods of those channels in 2004, 2005, we all have grown up in this industry together. Most of us are still all in the global news um, industry. And the ones that are still at the channels are the ones that are still at the channels and the ones that are still at the strategy and, and slash distri distribution type of thing in the United States are still the ones doing that. So I really do feel um, that it, it was all of us kind of all just started, quote unquote, in the industry at the same moment in time. And um utilized everybody's big dreams about what these channels could become to make them what their success is today. You're working in the global news sector at the same time that media is becoming kind of fragmented and there's all you're growing along with thousands of other channels that are being developed in various forms and everything's kind of been moving towards the internet. Can you talk a little bit about from the early 2000s to now what what that transition has been like. Well, I have a little antidote that I could start, like even in the 90s, that's really cool, that the other South Dakotan that was at the French company with me told me. You should me. just name him. <laughs> His name's Grant Oynes, and he's incredible. Nowadays, on any basic cable service that's in a metro area or on the satellite platforms, you know, you, you can see there's at least 20 channels that are in a, in a different language other than English that are there specifically because there is a community or a diaspora that's in that, that area, so it makes sense to have the channel. Well, how all that started originally was literally in the 90s when folks would come over for the UN, like when prime ministers or presidents would come over for UN and, and those kind of things up in New York City, they would rent an entire hotel out <laughs> and it might be Saudi prince. They want to have Saudi TV for the entire time that they're in New York City for the UN. And so they would literally pay <laughs> like a ludicrous amount of money, pay like a million dollars for a month of having Saudi TV placed into, you know, or $500,000 for Saudi TV being placed into a hotel. So they have access to it every night when they come home um, to the hotel. And that's how those satellite businesses all started was there was 
originally it was just um, what B2B, you know, business to business satellite uplinking the signal from from whatever country and downlinking it here in the United Almost States. Almost like closed circuit TV across the world. Kind of. <laughs> so they were paying for it in a business kind of sensibility in the 90s. And then people in the satellite world were like, well, this could be a business and this could be a consumer business. So why in the world wouldn't we do that? And that's literally how all that kind of happened. What was really incredible about what we did at MHC Networks was that we brought these channels to the United States and we did the business side for them so that they could just go ahead and um, focus on the editorial and focused on the news side and, and creating incredible content. And they had us in the United States and we were working on the distribution and working on the marketing and working on the viewer services and doing that kind of thing for them. While most American news sources have been cutting back their bureaus and cutting back their actual presence in countries and places where news outside the United States is happening, most of these global broadcasters are really, they're expanding their bureaus, they're expanding their resources in, in, in war-torn areas um, or in crisis areas. And, and that's kind of the difference between how it was when they started and how it is now and how they are looking long-term as sustainable businesses. They're really, you know, in the industry for a million years, what's been stated has been content is king. And that's been true forever, but it's the type of content that people are producing now that is king more so. You can't just throw random stuff up there, you know, and expect those kind of news sources to be viable and to actually accomplish anything. They're very, 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 very focused on making sure that their products are the best and the most high end as they can be. That's really interesting that you brought that up because that was where I was going to go next. Yeah. In terms of content, I know you have helped develop apps for Roku. It's my feeling that there's there's just so much content out there. And that's really interesting that you bring up how how focused they are on the quality and, mm-hmm. and you know what they're actually putting out there because it's you know it's fine to have a channel but you really have to kind of be reaching an audience mm-hmm. and I, I heard the statistic that Sundance Film Festival had if you look back to the early 90s had something like 250 submissions and now last year 2014 it's something in the neighborhood of 12,000 sure. submissions for it's out of control at this for point. 200 spots you know right. so when you look at that from the point of view of a filmmaker, why would I throw my $70 at, at Sundance when I know the odds are really against me? The idea that there's so many other channels now, mm-hmm. that there's these traditional channels to, to put out your content. But how do you, what, what would be your advice to, for, for content producers of matching up with the right channel? I can only speak anecdotally from what we what we did at MHZ and MHZ and their international broadcasters launched on Roku in 2010, and that's only five years ago. But that seems like six million years ago in terms of tech and in terms of you know all the digital distribution mechanisms that there are now. And the really funny part of that was amazing part of it, but funny part of it was so Roku was was designed for Netflix. That's what it was made for, to be the -the over-the-top distribution arm of Netflix prior to having the smart TVs that we have now. And so that was the first piece of content or channel, if you will, that was up there. The second was Amazon, (laughs) which is also a juggernaut. And the third was Major League Baseball. MHZ Networks was (laughs) before it. (laughs) And we were actually asked by them to join at that point in time. So... That's really early. Then. Really early because now there's, I don't even know how many are up there anymore. But there's thousands of channels right. on Roku uh, at this juncture. One of my favorites is bow hunting. 
bow hunting channel on Roku where it, it's just a bunch of <laughs> really short videos of people going out bow hunting. And it's, you know, it's really, I'm giving them a plug, but it's, you know, it's really poor quality. There's probably 10 videos on the app, you know, that have, haven't been updated in, you know, three years. Oh, goodness. But it, it's, but that, that's, <laughs> that's right next to something some that's really high quality. Right. 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 And it's, yeah, I mean, you can say that too about even if you go to Google TV. Apple TV and all the Apple apps have, you know, people give them crap about the fact that there's, you know, you need to give a hair sample and a blood sample and like turn over six million different levels of data to them before you can get an app on the platform. But there's a reason for that. They're maintaining brand continuity across the page. You know, Google, you know, I when we first launched our Google uh, TV application, I was down at the headquarters at the Google office down in DC and they had some of the guys come out from their apps team out in Silicon Valley and, and come out here and have a workshop and and talking with them like they were just <laughs> as well like look at this stuff this is incredible this is a this is an app for you to scan a barcode you can't use your TV to scan anything how is there an app to scan a barcode <laughs> on Google TV you know like it's laughable at some of the stuff that's allowed to be up there but at the same time you know you would look at like the downloads on that and those people are being paid for downloads and the advertisers that they have on there and those people are making millions of dollars some of them for just downloads alone on stuff that isn't even viable so how do you stand out amongst that I don't know that there is a true way to do that unless you've previously developed your audience. There's so many producers, me included, that I know that that work so hard to develop a craft, like filmmaking or whatever it might be. If it's for a creative purpose and they're they're creating something, they spend five, ten years developing that, and then they finally develop something that's that's viable, and then they hadn't given one thought to where it would end up. Right. Then they open that book and start to d- develop that skill of, of actually distributing mm-hmm. it. When in reality, it should be kind of the first thing that you think about. Well, the business side of it is oftentimes the hardest part of, of you know, the, the whole product cycle. Yeah. No, I, I get that totally. I mean, again, antidotally with our product when I was at MHZ, the situation that was there was, you know, that brand had the luxury of having had 20 some years of being, you know, a broadcast channel in Washington, D.C., and then also adding 10 more, <laughs> 11 more channels, actually. They were able to develop these audiences, you know, for a long, long time, and then they had a national TV channel. And so people in Los Angeles, people in Seattle, and people in Chicago, they fell in love with the content. And we even, you know, experienced as well um, in instances in cities where you would see this influx like two days later of people (laughs) signing on, making new Roku accounts for that specific jurisdiction or that specific city. So literally going out and buying the technology or buying, you know, buying the Roku box to get that content that they so love. So that really is, is, I guess, you know, a time tested and true um, model of, you know, having um, really built up the audience beforehand is literally, it's not brain science or rocket science or anything like that. But it's it's having that audience at your disposal, getting them really, really in love with something and then letting it spread like wildfire as technology grows. Not only everything moving towards the internet and away from broadcast, but then also further, the next step would be everything's moving towards social media. Mm -hmm. And there's a 
been tons of examples of videos released on Snapchat, which I know most of the people that I interact with don't have accounts. And the question of, are we developing video content in a traditional sense and just putting it up on social media? Or is there a thing that's called a social media video? Is that a separate kind of video? My head is buzzing with things I want to share on this topic as as I say this. But yeah, it's placing it into a more consumable, consumable environment. And it's not even just making things as snippets. Folks that seem to be doing a really good job of placing the video, even in Instagram right now, BBC World, AJ+. They're doing exceptional jobs on the whole addition of, of content into social. They're snippets, but they're made exactly for Instagram. They're no longer than 10 seconds. Beautiful video. But what they also have at the bottom of them are little subtitles that explain the story. So you can, so if you don't have your volume up and you're setting somewhere, you know, where you can't have your volume up, but you still want to see it on Instagram, you're able to read the story, but it's done in 10 seconds. And so it's an obtrusive in you know your life in that way you can watch it where you may maybe shouldn't be watching it but you still be able to get that new story or understand some viewpoint of the organization at that moment in time it's getting to the point in social networking for media entities and otherwise that content does so readily (laughs) need to be catered to um, that environment that there's organizations that are simply focused on that and only that Um, there's this organization right now called help a reporter out that's part of Cision, and they that's what their business is is they literally um, give advice on how even a freelance like freelance reporters or otherwise um, can really womp up (laughs) for real technical terms (laughs) scientifically based terms of womping something up Um, you know increase the interactivity, increase the visual element and um, the funness of their social networking profiles. Um, so if that means going to Giphy and always with every one of your stories, putting a cat, a cat GIF, GIF <laughs> um, next to it that gets people to attract to, um, to, uh, to click on the story, then that's what you need to do. But they have a lot of best practices and um, are really in the business. Like I said, they've turned the business of making, making attainability and bringing viewers in into their own little business. That's super cool. That's interesting. And <laughs> I was talking to somebody about this that, that runs a Facebook um, page and they were talking about how they they do inspirational quotes <laughs> they'll throw out an inspirational meme with a quote from somebody the numbers will go through the roof oh yeah and it's kind of funny how you have to kind of hack the social media and especially if you have a big big network that you have to hack it so that you can then reach your audience in the way that you actually need to sure it's warm and fuzzy will always go gangbusters for people people will always love that you know, I mean, that's why there's tons of Instagrams and Twitters that are devoted only to, you know, the daily positivity <laughs> quote or something like that. It's because people like that kind of stuff. You emphasize heavily networking and you're, you're, you enjoy networking, correct? I do. Which... It's basically put me in the middle of the room, spin me and watch me go. It's like I'm a top. <laughs> Which I'm, A six I'm... foot one top. <laughs> right. So you're an ex- extrovert, correct? Or would you consider yourself an extrovert? You know, every time I take <laughs> the test, I'm I come out either INTJ or ENTJ. Well, they're saying now there's a new kind. Well, I'm a blend of some yeah. somehow. I don't mind being alone, but I also really love being in the middle of people and learning and finding out more about what they're doing. So yeah, no, I 
I've always been gregarious since I was a little kid, but I was bashful. And somewhere along the way, when I first took, you know, when I first came out to DC and and took the first professional, professional job, you know, I was scared to talk to the important people that were at the channels that I was working on behalf of, or, you know, I was, I, there was a one man that one of the channels that I had to talk to, I was petrified to have calls with him. Like I was so scared to talk. And I think that, you know, I just grew up a little bit and then that kind of went away. But it was literally when I was 29, 30, I told, I had a little conversation with myself, a little come to Jesus conversation. I said, Steph, if you're going to be successful in the industry, you're going to have to just get over this, whatever this thing is. And it was from that moment on, like, it was literally what I just said, put me in the middle of the room and watch me go because um, it, it something clicked and changed. <laughs> and I think it probably was the fact that, you know, there's nothing bad that's going to come out of talking to anybody. It's only going to be positive. You know, I went back and spoke at um, SDSU for at a journalism class two summers ago, and one of the questions was, you know, what would you, what advice would you give to these graduates that are going to, you know, be graduating this this summer or this, this, this May? Um, and I was like, really, you cannot ask enough questions in this lifetime, and you cannot reach out to enough people and ask them what their, you know, perspectives are, what they think about if you guys did a collaboration or a partnership or fill in the blank there's there's not enough times in the universe that you could ask those questions because at the end of the day it's what if you know what if you didn't you're certainly not going to go anywhere or do anything if you don't well you have anything to lose if you do i remember going to a networking event with my mom when i was 21 (laughs) right outside of college how is that (laughs) and i didn't say a word uh i've gotten way better at yeah at at networking events and different things but it was and i had made up these little cards with a like literally slips of paper. What you're, what I, you're talking, what you're, what your right. and I, opening statement was going to be. And or, stuff. No, like cards, like fake business cards. Oh, business you, cards. Even though I had no skills or, I or anything like, to offer anyone. I thought you meant like cliff notes, <laughs> like of how you're going to introduce <laughs> <Hello>. yourself. <laughs> I am. My name is. Look down at the paper, Devin Gallagher. <laughs> no, it, and it was, I've always been a little bit shy when I first meet people and somewhat introverted mm-hmm. um, in, in certain situations and i have to go you know lie down on the couch if i spend three hours at a networking event i understand that but uh (laughs) i have friends that are just like you (laughs) but i think it would be really helpful if you talked about your literal process so just walk us through you arrive at a networking event and then what you do when you go home from a networking event all the way through through. well not you don't have to go into extreme detail no i get it um so (laughs) I do lots of reconnaissance prior to going anywhere. In order to talk to people, you have to know a little bit about them. So the best instance of um, of what I always do when I go on global trips to any kind of TV conference or whatnot is, and this is usually in, in the idea of business development, so bringing on clients. Okay, when you go to most conferences, all the big dogs are the ones that are on the stages and are talking, right? So it's the CEOs or the presidents of, of the media companies that you want to talk to. Everybody wants to talk to those folks after they get off the stage and everybody's bum rushing up to the stage afterward trying to get two words in edgewise and, and cram their business card into that person's um, hand. A lot of times not successful. 
I've tried that as well. Early on in my career, I tried that and I did that and I stood out and I most often usually did get the business card into the hand of the person, but it's only because I'm six one and they saw me first and I'm in three inch heels. So it was only just literally because I physically stood out, I believe. But as I started thinking about how this process should be better, better done and how I could work smarter, not harder, I decided that every single industry conference that exists in the world, I was going to look at the speakers list first, find those people on LinkedIn, reach out to them, not just cold call, reach out to them, but have um, the upgraded version of LinkedIn, which allows you to write a certain number of cold call emails every month that you don't get penalized for or get told you're a creepola for (laughs) and write those emails, tell them exactly what you have to be very clear, obviously short and sweet, but clear. And every single one of them, that I would write to, I'd be like, okay, listen, this is my, you know, I work, this is my name, I'm Stephanie Misar, work for, we are the leaders in X. I would like to have a one, one hour newscast, one 30 minute um, cultural program and a 30 minute comedy from you subtitled in English to place on our XXXYZ channels. Would you like to get a sandwich (laughs) before you speak on Tuesday at the conference in Hong Kong? I have yet to be turned down from that. Wow. You probably shouldn't have shared that secret. (laughs) And I don't think it's, I don't think, again, it's rocket science or anything. It's just pushing yourself to be able to do that. I think the hardest part for me when I was in my 20s and and before I made the decision, the conscious decision that I wasn't going to be scared to talk to people any longer is that you feel there's a little bit of like just weirdness with feeling like you're pimping yourself or that you're putting yourself out there. There's the rejection side of it. There's like, oh my gosh, what if? And there's like, well, I don't want to sound make myself sound like I'm bragging or braggadocious or like I think I'm really top dog or, you know, like there's all those kind of like, I don't want to come off that ick, away, icky way. It, but the thing is, it's it's not often perceived that way by a lot of people. If you're just genuinely nice and show an interest in what somebody's doing or how they, not even like for a business, for a a business proposal, but just simply for networking. If you legitimately contact somebody that is someone that you look up to in the industry or even in an industry that you're maybe interested in getting into, you locate that person, you find them on LinkedIn, you write them a nice email and say, listen, I'd really love to figure out how your career trajectory has gotten you to where you are and what you did would you like to have coffee next thursday most of the time people are going to be genuinely nice back to you because you've asked in a nice way and you've been genuine you know um and and it's and if you've even put 10 you know 10 seconds into thinking about how to be nice to them in an email it's usually going to pay off and then just if you could finish up so you you have the lunch with with the panel person and then you leave, you don't make a deal, of course, during that point necessarily. How do you follow up? How do I follow up? Typically. Well, typically, I mean, during the meeting or during the lunch or during the coffee or whatever, um, there obviously is the general conversation, the tenets of what I want from them and what they can give us and vice versa. I leave it with that I'm going to follow back up with them when I'm back in the States. And then I write, you know, I just write the business proposal based on what we discussed. And I think the reason why I had so much success with with doing deals with folks is because I made each deal be its own deal. Everything is on a case-by-case basis. I don't feel anything in life can be templated across the board. 
I tend to feel like most folks that I do any business deals with, because of the way I've approached them, and by the way that we've had conversations and such, that they view me in a friendly environment and not as someone that's trying to wheel and deal them. Well, it also sounds like you've done your homework and you're not you're not throwing the spaghetti against the wall and you're really targeting the people that that are that are actually worth your time and and going after them. Is that correct? Yeah, no, I am all about in business and business development in general is um, very much focusing what needs to be done and mixing that with what needs to happen in your business. I, I see the full circle of what needs to be accomplished from all angles and all business verticals. And I try to make sure that that's accomplished at the highest of, <laughs> of levels from the original business discussion downward. Yeah. So, so su- superhero then, right? Oh, if you want to say that, I'm not going to turn it down. The word that's also been used by three of my friends in the last three weeks has been inspiring. Nice. <laughs> so well, I looked on your LinkedIn and, and it was, and just to get some intel for this, <laughs> this podcast. And You're stalking me. Then I saw all of the, and I had to keep see more, see more of, of, all the recommendations that people had posted. And I was like, wow, this is a lot of good material. There you go. <laughs> this is Devin Gallagher, host of Media on the Radio. And thanks for listening. You can find new episodes of Media on the Radio. Visit arlingtonmedia.org.